Candace Lim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And this was the week Kate Middleton went missing, the Willy Wonka experience scammed Glasgow residents, and Rebecca Ferguson sent true detectives out for blood. And so much happened that we might dive deeper into one of these hot topics next week. So on this show, we only have time to cover a few of the internet stories going on right now, which makes me thankful that substacks like Lincoln Bio exist. Rachel Carton is the writer behind Lincoln Bio, a newsletter about working in social media, creating clever content, and making sure your boss never asks you to go viral. Now, those are Rachel's words, and you might have seen Rachel's work as a social media consultant for brands like Kava. Westalm and Epicurious. Now, right before starting her newsletter, Rachel was a social media manager for Bon Appetit. She worked at the food magazine for about four years until the summer of 2020, when a racial and labor reckoning led to Adam Rappaport resigning as editor-in-chief. Test Kitchen stars like Priya Krishna, Solel Whaley, and Rick Martinez leaving the brand. And talent like Molly Boz, Claire Savitz, and Rachel herself departing soon after. As we'll touch on in this episode, Rachel resigned because as a social media manager, she felt it was important to genuinely love and believe in the brand she works for. But her departure also brought up questions about the unseen and unappreciated labor behind social media work. So on today's show, I'm diving into Rachel's internet diaries to find out what's been the hardest part of running her substack, what led her to leave Bon Appetit, and what the media keeps getting wrong about online trends. I'll be back with Rachel Carton after the break. Hey there. If you love our podcast, then maybe you should consider subscribing to Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, there are no ads on any Slate podcasts. And Slate Plus helps keep this podcast going because this show would not be possible without your support. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus segments and episodes for shows like Hit Parade. Culture Gap Fest, and Dear Prudence. You'll also never hit a paywall on the Slate website, meaning you get access to every article and every advice column. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back. Joining me today is a social media consultant and the writer of LinkedIn Bio, a substack where she explains the inner workings of social media and why things go viral. Honestly, her substack is this podcast, but in newsletter form. Please welcome to the show, Rachel Carton. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Candice. So excited to be here. So happy to have you. Now, before we dive in, This is your first time on the show, so I have to ask you the question we ask all first-time guests, which is, what is your first internet memory? I feel like my first internet memory is probably, like, browsing e-bombs world. Do you remember that website Oh! (laughs) It's, like, old videos that were, like, end of the world and, like, all of these, like, sort of, like, weird internet-y, I don't even know, like, very early internet-y videos. And I just remember my first internet memories are very, like social, I feel like we'd be going over to a friend's house, sitting at their family computer and like powering up a website. And like the first website that comes to mind to me is like e-bombs world and watching all of the like 
weird, probably inappropriate. I haven't watched these videos in like years and years. So if they are bad, don't come for me. But yeah, it was like a very like social thing where you just like pull up a chair to the family computer and like browse and E-Bombs World comes to mind. Oh, man. That is a great core memory. <laughs> it's a deep cut. It is. It's a deep cut. I love knowing this about you. And I love your Substack, which, by the way, you can find at milkcarton.net. Can I ask, when is the first time you, like, went by Milk Carton when you realized, like, oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wonderful question. That was my screen name, like, oh. when I was younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that was my AIM screen name. And it just, it stuck. It really stuck. I love this. And you do a really good job of breaking down the things we see. So it's like, how did Stanley Cups go viral? Why did the Duolingo Owl get a BBL? Was seemingly ranch a machination of the New York Jets? And I feel like this type of media literacy that you would assume millennials or Gen Zers would be well-versed in, it's like another level to the internet experience because your newsletter always teaches me something that I don't know. And it always teaches me something that I don't know about the way we are being influenced at and sold to. And so, Rachel, I would love to ask about your professional life before this newsletter. Like, what was it like being a social media manager and consultant? You know, I've always been interested in telling stories on the internet. When I was in college, I had a blog called, like, The Pretty Palette. And it was about art and music. And I've just been so interested always in like Tumblr and in expressing yourself online. And so when I graduated college, I knew I wanted to do that in some way. And so I worked at a company called Plated, which was like a meal kit delivery Mm. uh, company. And I was doing all sorts of things for them. But what I really wanted to be doing full time for them was social media. And eventually I made the case to do that. And then I went to Bon Appetit. And that was really interesting to go from, you know, telling stories for a brand to then telling stories for a publishing company. And so I feel like those two experiences have been really important. And now my consulting where I work with brands, I've worked with Kava, uh, mm-hmm. the Mediterranean fast casual chain, I've worked with West Elm. And I think social media is so expansive. And so I love just like looking at it through the lens of how brands use social media and how brands use social media does move social media culture does there's brand only memes Duolingo is a brand and that's such a huge part of social media culture. So yeah, my newsletter, I just really wanted to like have a space to talk about how brands can use social media and have it come from a perspective that you just don't hear very often, which is from social managers themselves. A lot of times in the popular like advertising publications, you're hearing from the CMOs and the people who frankly, aren't involved in the day-to-day of social media. And so I wanted to build a resource for every social manager out there. And for those of us who have not worked in the vicinity of like a social media management type role, how would you describe that day-to-day? Like, are you posting things? Are you filming things? Are you like telling the CMO you're like old and too boomer for this stuff? (laughs) I think it's about your audience, a lot of it these days, and figuring out what does your audience want from you as a brand and what kind of stories can you tell as a brand that feel universal. And so I think a lot of my time is spent, yes, actually coming up with posts. I always thought like as I grew in my career in social, I would be like not the one posting anymore, but I love posting. I love posting and seeing the audience reaction and responding to the audience and commenting back. And like, to me, that's what social media is all about. So I'm, you know, dreaming up campaigns and I'm also sitting there uploading a TikTok at 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of runs the gamut. 
Mm-hmm. And you've been working in social media for like a decade. The internet has changed so much. The way brands talk to us has changed so much. How would you describe the gatekeeping in terms of like, if you wanted to post something, did you have to run the captions by like five people? Or was there a point where you were just like doing whatever you wanted and it was a little bit more freewheeling? I think it's less of like, there's been a change in the time of like how approval processes and sort of flexibility work and more. I've always just made it a huge priority to work for companies that have a very trusting process with social media. And so you'll find with like, you know, when I've talked to Zaria who runs Duolingo, she is really building like a culture of trust and risk-taking at Duolingo that allows her to post like that. And so I think that I've seen like less of a thing, like in terms of like time gone by and how people trust social managers more and more about social managers learning to build that culture that allows them to post in these more maybe like chaotic, or traditionally like less buttoned up ways, I guess I would say. Yeah. And fast forwarding to now, maybe this is a good place to ask, what is your internet diet like nowadays? Like what's a typical day on the internet for you? What are you checking when you first wake up? Talk to us through that schedule of yours. So, I mean, I am obviously biased because I write a newsletter myself, but I really truly do feel like I get a lot of my information from newsletters. You know, I read like Hunter Harris's Hung Up. Mm -hmm. I read Casey Lewis's After School. I have like a theory that I've been (laughs) working on that I just feel like the internet is so expansive. There's so many places to get information now that we're like now looking back to people to curate it for us. And so I would rather read Casey's, you know, five links that she thinks I should read today about Gen Z culture and what people are buying, then go look for it myself because I don't know where I would start and I can just subscribe to Casey's newsletter and she tells that for me. Um, So I consume a ton of newsletters. I am on Reddit. I will never ever contribute to a snark page, but I do look at them. Um, I am of course, on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, way too much, way too much. But um, I feel like those are my main sources. As a lurker, and I'm speaking of myself, I too lurk. (laughs) Like, do you ever feel like there's something maybe a little icky sometimes about the snark pages? Because I like this idea of like marketers and maybe people trying to think about like, which influencers should we reach out to, to blah, blah, blah. I can kind of imagine them going to that page and being like, okay, it's very clear who the villains are here. Maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should. Like, I don't know, as a consumer, do you ever feel weird about like scrolling through that page? Yeah, for sure. I feel like I'm coming at it less as like a like, here's my entertainment for the night and more of like a like sociological, like trying to understand the like relationship between followers and influencers. Now with the algorithms, like you used to, I think, be able to like opt out of influencer culture more, but now the algorithms and with discoverability, like you can't really opt out of it. And so it makes sense to me that there's this like, arena where people want to vent about it because it's pretty inescapable at this point. And a lot of people are like, well, just unfollow if you don't enjoy it. And like, you can't really unfollow anything anymore. So yeah, I think there's some posts on there that I'm like, that's not good. But I I, like want to understand why it exists. I want to understand why people feel the way they do about influencers. It's interesting. Like a theme you'll see is like, I really liked them until they quit their job to become a full-time influencer. I think that's an interesting narrative just like as a marketer. And I don't know Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do with that information, but it's kind of curious to me that that's a theme that I've seen. I'm less interested in like un- 
necessary meanness. <laughs> yeah. I think what always kind of surprises me is like how much of my like media literacy muscles I have to use when I scroll through the comments of a subreddit about Hannah Bromfman, Daniel Bernstein, Alex Earl, because like I went to journalism school. And so like I know which sources to trust. But when I go on Reddit, especially like a snark page, there are times when I have to really take out the highlighter and be like, okay, this probably came from this type of person from this type of place. Maybe discredit this. Is it a criticism or is it pushback? Huh? Interesting. And like it's kind of probably a result of the fact that you are saying we can't escape influencers. So our best foot forward is maybe to try to understand them or at least Mm -hmm. be critical in a way that is productive because they're not going away. So I think that you've done so much interesting work. And one of the most interesting things you did was you worked at Bon Appetit for four years on their social team. And you left in August 2020. That does happen to be around the time Bon Appetit's video staff had a bit of like a racial reckoning and a labor reckoning. And when you resigned, you posted this statement on Instagram that I'd like to read a little of because you wrote, I have always said that for me to be successful at social media, I need to genuinely love and believe in the brand I work for. Knowing what I know now, I cannot in good faith continue to work on behalf of a company like Condé Nast. Could you maybe first talk to me about what it was like to work at Bon Appetit during that period of time and maybe like what spurred on your decision to leave? When you work in social media, you own these accounts that you post on and you feel a lot of sort of responsibility to connect with your audience and to post things that your audience wants to hear from you. And especially when you work in social media, you feel like you know your audience really well. And Mm -hmm. so I think during that time, I felt like I was maybe being asked to post things that I didn't agree with and that my audience or the Bon Appetit audience wouldn't want to hear from us. And it's one thing to work somewhere and try and put something out of your head. It's another thing to like physically post something that you just don't agree with. And so I think that became like really hard for me. And so that sort of like feeling of like, I am being asked to put things out there that I don't agree with. And it was a really like personal moral issue for me. And so I think that was a big reason that I decided to leave. I really like the part in your statement where you said you need to genuinely love and believe in the brand that you work for. Is that something you thought about when you first started working at Bon Appetit, at Plated, at like social media managing? Or did that kind of grow on you later on? Um, I think I've always thought that because again, that like, there's such a, it's a hard to explain, but like a physical nature of like working in social where you are posting things to be consumed by an audience and you want to feel really good about those posts. And so, you know, I always wanted, for example, to work in food and in social because I love telling stories about food. And I think that I'm only good at doing social media for brands and companies that I care about their product and I care about their mission and I care about what they're selling. I think it would be very hard for me to do social media for a company whose mission really did not align with my personal values. And some people might say, I could do that easily. That's fine. But for me, it's like, I'm good at social because I'm passionate about telling those stories. So I'm going to come up with like interesting new ways to tell that story. And so as soon as I work for a brand or consult for a brand where it just doesn't feel like my personal passion is there, it's going to be very hard for me to execute a good social strategy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I first want to say that when you posted that statement on Instagram four years ago, the Reddit girlies were really proud of you. I mean, like I was reading back on some of the comments and there were a lot of people being like, good for her. She deserves to do good work for good places. And I first off think it is so hard to be posted on Reddit for a good reason. But I also think that you leaving Bon Appetit and stating very clearly why, it did kind of bring up this conversation about the unspoken, unseen labor of social media managers. Because, you know, since the days of 2012 and like BuzzFeed, I feel like there is this assumption that a social media manager is someone who like posts on Instagram while waiting for their blue bottle coffee and they like walk around taking vines of dogs. And looking back, what do you wish more people knew about your job and your work as a social media manager for a brand? I mean, I think that another big reason that I started the newsletter was to just shine a light on the work that social managers do. And I'm not trying to say, oh my gosh, it's like the hardest job in the world. But I I truly believe that every single industry should have a link in bio newsletter. Like, hmm. you know, my husband works in like video production. I'm like, that'd be so cool if there was a newsletter that just like dove into like video production. And something that I've done with Lincoln bio is I did, you know, a salary survey to like have more salary transparency within social media. I think social media is a really underpaid job because of that sort of, oh, the intern could do it. The, oh, what interns running, you know, insert large corporation that would never have an intern running their social media. Mm -hmm. I think that just by writing seriously and interviewing and taking this job seriously in my newsletter, it helps the perception around what people who work in social media do. And so I wish this newsletter existed when I was younger and working in social. And I think that it feels good that I feel like we've come a long way in terms of the perception of who runs a social account and kind of how much power and return on investment it can have for a brand. Exactly. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, I'll ask Rachel about her first fandom, her most deeply held internet conspiracy theory, and her golden rule for being online. And we're back. So let's talk about the newsletter, Link in Bio. I mean, talk to me a little bit about how you started it and just what was it like to run a newsletter in the early days? Was it fun? Was it harder than you expected? What is that like on the back end? Yeah, I mean, I think when I started it, it was, you know, free and it was just like when I decide to write it, I will send it out and I wasn't taking it too seriously. But when I did announce it on my social for the first time. I think like on the first day, like 8,000 people signed up for it. And I was like, oh, I guess that people (laughs) want this. And I guess I should probably take it more seriously. Mm. Um, And honestly, like every day I'm like, I think I've reached all the social managers. There's got to be like a cap to this. And it still is like growing and it's still, there's like a need for it. And it's been really fun to grow out of just doing the interviews. And now I send... Um, more sort of like recaps of what's happening week to week on brand social. And I've been creating these guides that have been really well received. And I just released one about what it's like to do freelance social. And it's just a Mm -hmm. huge guide with templates and example decks and all of these things of like everything you need to know to go freelance. So I don't know, I keep thinking like, I'm going to hit some sort of like, 
roadblock or just be done with it or reach everyone that needs to hear about it. So yeah, it's been very exciting and a pretty just like natural progression. Yeah. And the other thing too is that you clearly write with a voice. And that is not surprising to me because when you post for a brand, when you create social strategy for that brand, you also have a voice that is a bit filtered through, you know, a Mm -hmm. company, but at the same time, it has to be genuine to yourself. Has it been weird or different writing your voice with your name to it, your byline? Like, is there maybe a layer of transparency that is a different muscle you had to build? Yeah. And I think that's probably why I started with interviews because I was like, I'm just going to shine a light on all these amazing social managers. Like no one wants to hear from me. I don't want to hear from me. And so it's definitely been a little bit more of a process, you know, writing those newsletters that do come from my perspective where I am giving my opinion. And I think I see a lot of examples of resources and educational resources of what I don't want mine to be. And I feel like that Mm. kind of helps me a little bit of like, okay, I don't want it to sound preachy or I don't want it to be devoid of any voice because that's what all of the like SEO, you know, search results are. So I think by like seeing examples of what I don't want to be or what I feel like is missing from like educational resources helps kind of motivate me to keep going and add my voice and keep bringing in lots of different people to interview. And yeah, it's sort of like the backwards effect of like, okay, I know I don't want to be this, so I will be this. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is the hardest part about running and writing your Substack? The hardest part is probably like making sure I have what I need to have on the day that it's supposed to go live, which mm-hmm. is maybe the most boring answer, but it's like some of those like administrative things I feel like. And of course, you know, putting yourself out there, posting on LinkedIn, that's maybe the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that I need to post on LinkedIn and cringing every time I do. Oh man. I mean, I think that also kind of makes me wonder, you know, you are someone who used to strategize for brands. Do you ever feel like you yourself have kind of become a brand because of the Substack? I don't feel like I've become a brand, but I do understand that I need to sometimes treat myself like one or I will usually like after I send a newsletter set aside like an hour for like promoting the newsletter. And that feels like something a social manager would do for Mm -hmm. themselves. You know, it's like, okay, on LinkedIn, I'm going to talk about it this way because LinkedIn doesn't post when I post links and they suppress those posts. So I need to find one story from the newsletter that I'm really going to pull out and tell there. And then on Twitter, I'm going to do a thread. And it's like, I do treat it like I am a social manager. And because I also do feel a pressure that if I'm going to write a newsletter about being really good at social, then like the social for that newsletter should also be really good. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, I, I, I treat the newsletter, I think, like a brand in terms of like social promotion. So I want to ask about this line between fun internet and work internet, because, you know, as someone who hosts a show about internet culture, I get this question a lot, which is how do you cover the internet? How do you enjoy the internet when it's your job? Because, you know, at any point you see a tweet that maybe could become a story. Anytime you open that portal, it's like, oh, am I like unconsciously clocking in? Should I be kind of like off right now? I mean, how would you describe your relationship to the internet right now? Unhealthy, I would say, you know, I, <laughs> All I mean, of us, though. that All genuinely, of us. that's not even like, you know, I feel like sometimes it's like, oh, I'm, but I'm like, I, genuinely, it is unhealthy. And like, I'm 
trying to, I always say like, I'm trying to find ways to like cut back or, you know, set aside time where like, for like work scrolling. And it just, so much of my consumption is, I'm unaware of it. I go to like Mm. do something on my phone and I end up on TikTok or I go to find a video I saved on TikTok to put in the newsletter. And all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, I've been scrolling on TikTok. And so it's unhealthy and I'm working on it, I guess would be the best summary. Yeah. How are you working on it? Do you have any like advice for us who are also uh, in that illness of sorts? I mean, this is horrible, but like I need to do activities that make me put my phone away. I cook, Mm. you know, I go to like a workout class, like things where I physically put my phone away. Like that's my first sort of step. Yeah, I absolutely relate to that. I've come to a point where first I'm like, I think we should just return to desktop computers, you know, where it's like in the den in the corner and we only open that portal from like five to six and then we're off now that doesn't work for a lot of us who work from home but i'm like i'd love to go back to like the colorful apple huge max days and then i'm at a point now where i literally before i open said twitter.com i have to like write a list of what i'm trying to look for and try to focus on the list i'm like don't don't go don't be switching apps don't double tap the home don't do that it's a lot. <laughs> I know. It's really it's really hard. So the next questions I want to ask you are a little bit more like getting to know you, getting to know your taste perhaps on the internet. And so I want to ask, what was the first fandom you joined and where did you find them? So I feel like I wasn't in any fandoms, but... I had a huge crush on Ryan Sheckler, the skateboarder (laughs) that like, you know, (laughs) so was I, you know, probably in sorts of like weird websites that would just, you know, round up all the photos taken of him. Yes. You know, was I buying every J14 (laughs) that he was in? Yes. Yes. Um, So it was more of like a crush based fandom, I would say. But I mean, I really was like mom and dad we got to go to the x games to see him like it was like it was a lot (laughs) yeah yeah and he was on a show right like on mtv it was like a reality show or something yes he had a reality show i forget the name of it i completely remember that and it's so funny because i think the hair was iconic it was Mm -hmm. the caps he was like definitely one of the first athletes that i was like oh yes yes (laughs) i I don't know know there was something i there was something about him that really was just like that's my guy. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, that is that is a good one. That is a good one I haven't heard before. I love that. What is a meme that you reference a lot? I feel like I'm like into like the meme templates that are more like sort of like hand drawn black and white. Like there's one that was like a person that's made up of a puzzle and it's like all a person is missing is one piece and I'm like always find like whatever riff on that is very very funny. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the like party meme where like they don't know I'm blank. Like I feel like those yes. ones I'm I'm into. Maybe I'm into those though because they're like less like legal issues with a brand using them. So like that's just <laughs> where like my mind gravitates to. Um, I think that honestly could be why I'm saying those. I don't know. I'm into those kind of like weird, like hand-drawn memes. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is your most deeply held but least provable internet conspiracy theory? I don't know if this counts, and I think it could be proven, but I think that there's, you know, 
always like once a year, this like moment where it's like, bring back chronological feed. Instagram has changed. We hate Instagram. Like bring back chronological, the old photo Instagram. I'm convinced if Instagram were to ever do that, everyone would hate it. We're addicted to algorithms. Algorithms Mm. make Instagram interesting. And that if they brought chronological feed, you'd be bored. You don't want to see your second cousin's (laughs) blank. Like there's just, there's a reason they've done it. And I think that there's some valid criticisms, but you, I promise you, you don't want the old Instagram back. Yeah. You're like, I don't want the flops to the top. Don't do that. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) It's funny because when I was like in middle school, high school, you know, come home, go on YouTube, watch my YouTubers every day. I would always be so pissed whenever they changed the layout of YouTube. So the Mm. recommendeds are here, the hillists are here. I would be so angry. Then I'd get used to it. And then they put out a new one and then I'm angry again. And I think there's just something about the way that like, we always want the thing we can't have, then we have it, then we're like, bring it back. We don't like change. We, we don't, don't like change. change. No, 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 no. I'd love to know, what are your personal rules for engaging online? Like, how often do you post? Where? Do you ever have moments where you have to pick who to fight and who to ignore? I feel like I think about each platform probably because I work in social, but like each platform like does something different for me. And so I find that for like LinkedIn and Twitter, it's very work focused, promoting the newsletter, sort of trying to find a new audience for people who want to learn more about social media. Whereas it's interesting for like my Instagram, you know, when I worked at Bon Appetit, I did get like a following for people who were curious where I was eating or what I was cooking. And then now I also have an audience who's interested in learning about social media. And so I feel like my Instagram and for a lot of like brands and people, my Instagram just sort of like has it all. It's like, Mm. there's my dogs, there's food, there's some social media stuff. And then I have TikTok, which is like basically me posting like in like spurts, like once a month of like, I'm going to post on TikTok every day. And then I do it for like three days and get tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I try it again the next month. Across any social media platform, is there like any trend or maybe social media behavior that you've been noticing lately that like really bothers and annoys you? I guess I would say that I think it's more like a reflection of social, but like a lot of articles now, and this is not, you know, I've heard this criticism a lot, but like we'll sum up a like TikTok trend as if it's like a real life trend. And I think that we need to move into two types of trend pieces that can exist online um, in article form. There's trends that are on TikTok and then there's trends that exist in the real world. And I don't like the conflation of the two. Um, For example, like I tweeted the other day that people were applying fake freckles with broccoli on TikTok. And I tweeted, you know, on TikTok, people are doing this, but I could see like a beauty site, you know, making that headline, like the newest trend applying freckles with broccoli. And like, there's a big difference between that and saying it's a something that people are doing online in front of a camera mm-hmm. um, versus it's something that people are actually doing even when the camera's off. I don't think anybody is applying fake freckles with broccoli, like if they're not recording themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that like we can get to a point where we're able to like write headlines and sort of like distinguish between the two types of trends that happen. Is it happening in real life or is it just happening because it's getting people views and they want to participate in that trend to get views themselves?
Okay, that's the show. I want to thank Rachel Carton for joining me on today's episode. You can subscribe to Rachel's newsletter, link in bio at milkcarton, that's K-A-R-T-E-N dot net, where she talks about what happens when a brand steals your work, how do memes work, and what makes a good social media manager. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candice Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online or at the X Games.